Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. Uh, It's kind of a special show because I think this is the first time that I'm bringing a guest back on for the third time. And uh, now that we're doing our shows both in audio and video, that's doubly exciting. So our special guest today is is Catherine Chernick-Faber. Catherine is one of the world's leading experts on the Enneagram and uh, is really my go-to person whenever I have a burning Enneagram question. And today I want to pick up on a conversation I had with Catherine about a year and a half ago, maybe a little longer, where we were talking about the instincts in the Enneagram, and I want to pick up on that. And then Catherine is starting a whole new chapter in her work life where she's using the Enneagram as the generator and the context for a whole new set of really powerful work. You know, one of the things I've always respected about Catherine is her commitment to workability and to producing results and to always going for more. And so I know it's going to be a very dynamic, exciting conversation. So Catherine, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Oh, welcome to you too, David. It's always fun to talk to you, beginning with the very first time we met and discussed your tritype. So let's pick up on uh, the second discussion I had with Catherine. You can go back into the archives and find it by going to Cutting Edge Doc. That's cuttingedgedoc.com forward slash episodes and scrolling down and you'll see the second conversation with Catherine. I think it's probably around episode 12 or so, somewhere 11, 12, somewhere in there. So uh, please go back to that episode for background information. But I wanted to pick up on the conversation about the instincts because my major Enneagram type is four. For those of you that know Mm -hmm. my type, I'm a 471. And uh, the literature that I've read about the instincts uh, or subtypes for four is confusing to me because it doesn't quite fit for me. Um, I... I thought before I read about it, I thought that I would be the intimate one-to-one subtype because uh, that kind of connection is so important to me, but I don't fit any of the affect or behavior descriptions of the sexual or intimate one-to-one subtype for Enneagram type four. Um, I actually fit much closer the description of the one-to-one subtype for the five, but I'm clearly not a five. And so I didn't know where to go with that. And so I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to Catherine here to see if she can guide me out of this cloudy morass. (laughs) Well, it is a cloudy morass in a way because 
when we originally were introduced to the uh, instinctual subtypes, and they were called subtypes at that time. Now there there are multiple names like instinctual types, instinctual variants. But what I would say is they are really instinctual types unto themselves, separate from the Enneagram. But used together, they create a very specific focus of attention, just as with tri-type. So when you identify as a four, more with self-press five, it's giving you an important clue. And that is that you're probably more likely the self-pres for with the five wing and potentially five in the tri-type. And I'll tell you why. The core fear of the four is being flawed, defective, or inadequate. And this is like a fundamental unconscious fear that is existential and operating all the time. And the core fear of the instinctual types, in this case, the sexual, it's of, um, of being incomplete. And not just incomplete in the terms that you want that someone, but to be really someone that you are one-to-one with and not just someone who pays attention to you and tracks you, but someone that you must track in order to feel safe and secure in the world. So it's safety and security through intimacy. And that and, description fits me perfectly, but then when I read well, about wait, let me, the let me way th- those people behave and act and everything, it doesn't fit that description. I haven't finished, so let me, please, let me finish because it's a key piece that's often misunderstood. So all fours, great, great points, David, because all fours want intimacy. All fours want connection. So all fours initially think that they are sexual. It takes a little more testing out. Now, what is key here is that the fear of abandonment, the fear of being inadequate would run no matter what. But how do you solve that? What is it that you need? Where is your tension going? Is it going to another that gives you security or, you know, admiration? Or is it going to someone that you are continually giving to so they will in a way, be there for you. So the sexual, and if they don't have it, by the way, if the sexual one-to-one intimate instinct does not have that, they become really amplified in a way to get it. It's like the four is the child that cries to get the attention of the mother. So if the mother doesn't come, you cry louder and louder and louder. And this is the underpinnings of the four's unconscious desire to say, come to me, take care of me, feed me. So the all fours will have this to a degree, but the self-pressed four will take pride in enduring 
for the sake of beauty, art, and aesthetics, especially your tritype, the four with the one, four, seven, because there's an idealistic, enduring one comes into play there, and it's more focused on what one should do. But what's happening is you're getting an emotional element, the four, with kind of a visceral element of the self-pres. So it tempers that bigger explosion. Not that you don't have them internally, but what happens to the sexual four is it's double emotional. So they can't help it. In a way, they're just like erupted. They've already voiced it. They've already cried louder. They can't endure. And with that comes a sense of entitlement. Now, I really have to explain all elements of the instincts to see how each instinctual type with each Enneagram type really fulfills a biological imperative and that we need each one of these combinations. Now, the most extreme would be the 468, the sexual 468, because they would just have really nothing that would help them go in and down. But if you're the sexual, you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt the many times that you would have felt embarrassed because you immediately said something and displayed your anger. And in a way, you would feel almost entitled to it till after the fact when you'd say, oh, wow, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. But the sexual four, it's almost like they have... uh, (laughs) their skills in terms of social relating are inconsistent because of this dynamic of this intense drive for union fusion with their ideal other. That if there's any possible way that there's a breach in that, they will act out. So you, all teenagers go through that. We all know that stage when we're teenagers. In a way, the sexual four is still carrying that archetype. So do you relate to that when you're a teenager now? And is it still what you struggle with? Whereas the self-pres four has a kind of an ability to endure. The other thing is the sexual four cares very much about their appearance. Again, because it's needing to be the peacock of attractiveness as well as kind of that moist um, energy that is alluring. So they dress in a very unusual, beautiful, um, kind of charismatic way. So They're not practical is what I'm trying to say. So what I feel is I feel this dynamic tension between between the passion and the love of depth and intensity of the foreness with, um, I would say, the influence of the self-pres and the one that has to do with uh, doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have a... I don't dress flamboyantly. I don't. um, It's much more important to me, you know, to be comfortable 
and have a feeling of energetic flow in my body than it is for me to purchase a particular article of clothing, for example. So your way of speaking about it is helping me to understand how the four of me and the self-preservation instinct are, 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 are interacting in me. Right. So that you, when you're a sexual type, you have to be like a fishing lure, you know, scintillating, shiny, twinkly, to draw in the people that you want. And the best way to do that is non-verbally through decoration. Now, other types can dress well. In fact, fours don't always dress well, and I wouldn't use the word flamboyant unless the four has seven in a tri-type. But they, they dress in a unique way. They want things others do not possess. If they have a favorite uh, hat or, or watch or something with which the four identifies, if you see another four wearing that or another person wearing that same article of clothing, you don't want to ever wear it again. It, it's yeah, no, it's yeah, part that, of the persona. Yeah, no, that doesn't fit for me. The things that I'm tracking are things that are much more energetic. Yes. Well, all fours are really good at that, I should say. And yet the sexual four, all of that is amplified because it's, I must have what I need or I will die. Now, all Enneagram types at their root feel that, but do they display it? How visible is it to us? And the sexual four is the most visible of all the combinations in terms of type and instinct. And they, they don't wear comfortable practical clothes. They may be included, but it just doesn't serve their need to be different, to stand out, right. to be exclusive. Right. My, my desire for uniqueness shows up in other ways. The way you're articulate, the way you're... Um, the quality of my work, the depth of my work, right. the artistry of my work. It shows up more in, in a thoughtfulness. It shows up more... It may be more of an aesthetic sense. It shows up more in those kinds of ways. Yes. It's such a great example. And if you can find within you that ability to endure for the sake of what's right, for the sake of containment, for the sake of the sense of aesthetic perfection that you feel, when you do, that's more the self-pres for. Right. It's a pride in that. Now, understand in the first dissemination of the instincts, that did not go out. I didn't learn that till 1996 when I studied with Naranjo and he taught the instincts in their entirety in, um, yeah, April of 1996. Before that, he'd only touched on some of the types. So what happened is it wasn't really understood that there's a whole new energy created when these two elements come together. And a lot of fours thought they were the 
bad for because they would show their anger more readily and, and quickly and spontaneously. And then I remember at the first conference in 97 where I taught all my, my findings to the larger group, it was amazing how many fours came up to me and said, oh, I didn't know this was a part of a dynamic that I'm always going to be working with, an oscillation of these energies constantly going up. And that's the key thing, too, by the way, when I say the word oscillation, is with self-pres, as you get more uh, connected and intimate, you go down and relax. You're solid and you're in, in sync with your discussion in one way, whereas the sexual is looking for in sync in the way the energy rises, mm. not, not the way it grounds down and relaxes. This is so important. I, I'm so glad you talked about this because I have two more questions on the topic. And that was one of my questions is there seems to be sort of a ball of confusion around the whole conversation around subtypes and instincts that uh, uh, makes it hard to, to really grok it. And uh, I think you touched on a little bit of the historical antecedents about why that might be and uh, I'm excited as we segue later into talking about your current work that you're doing uh, if some of that will address this whole issue of subtypes in a new way. Uh, the, the last question I had um, using me as an object lesson is given that I'm a 471 tri-type and um, does that mean because my four subtype is self-pressed, that doesn't necessarily mean that my seven and one tri uh, subtypes are also self-pressed, correct? They could be no, other. Great. No, great question. That Oh, I wanted so much, David, as I was doing this study, to have the all three instincts, like one type was an instinct, so you could be self-pres for and sexual one and social seven. Didn't work. Did it not. Would have, it would have been so wonderfully elegant. But what happened instead is that the instincts were so powerful, so primitive, and so fundamental that they prevail. Now, having said that, on another level, once we look at the obvious elements of that you are a self-pres uh, five and a self-pres uh, three, and you'd have to look at self-pres seven and self-pres one because the self-pres is the more dominating factor. But then as a secondary understanding with nuance as to why you may do things in a particular way i do look at that pattern i do determine what i want it to be the primary elegant expression so it's there but it's much much further down than we would have ever anticipated or that i wanted i should say so it's more in the fine tuning it's in the fine tuning but yeah i it, just the fact that you identified with self pres 5 is a real clue there. You didn't identify with sexual five. And that's because the instinct is more key to our defense strategy than our 
type and tri-type. So our instinctual stacking. And this is why in the very beginning, when I studied the instincts, I found that I had to come up with a way to explain that we use all three, not just one. Because when I was learning, you just had one. And that there is a descending order in which we use them, but that we use all three. And then I found three different patterns with which we can use these. So I'll be going into that in the, um, the segment on the instincts with um, the personality advantage when I go into the Enneagram in relationship to the instincts. And it really makes a difference if you don't look at this stacking order, because what happens, and it's my fault, by the way, I said that the third instinct was the blind spot because it was the younger, more immature element. So you had your dominant instinct, you had your second instinct, and then the third was your blind spot. But what I found after 20 almost 25 years of study is that it's actually the arrogance of the second instinct that is the ultimate blind spot that we work with the dominant instinct first, whatever that is, let's say it's self-present in your case, your second instinct would be the sexual and your third instinct would be the social. So we would have said your social was, was blind, but Actually, the sexual thinking that everything's like okay is what's blind. Because we're like, that second instinct, we're not attending to it in the same way. We're not going, oh, wow, I'm overdoing it. That's the dominant instinct. And we're not saying, oh, I need to do more of it. It's just there. And we're kind of comfortable with it. And that's where we can have some really deep-rooted patterns that if we become conscious of them, we can shift our awareness and create really dynamic changes that are long-lasting and very effective. It's uh, so fascinating. You know, uh, you brought up the wings, the five and the three. Uh, I hadn't mentioned that, and so I wanted to mention that that's why Catherine brought up the five and the three, because of the the importance of the wings. Uh, one of the things I notice about myself and the wings is I was never comfortable with the model of, oh, I'm a four with a blank wing, because it always seems to me like it's a dynamic uh, among that whole triad. And that um, what I've noticed about myself with regard to being a four and looking at the five and the three for myself is I notice that I'll first tend to go to the five and really have a, when, when I have a passion for something, then I'll go over to the five first and really want to study it, really want to investigate it, really want to become expert at it. And then once I feel that connection between the passion and the knowledge, then the three starts to come into play. And I want to teach. I want to speak. I want to be out there sharing. I want to present. And I'm using myself again as an object lesson because 
I was never really comfortable with the more static model of, oh, you're a blank with a blank wing. And um, for those of you who have listened to the prior two conversations and know my Enneagram story and my gratitude to Catherine is that I studied the Enneagram off and on for over 20 years, and it really didn't come to life for me until I got exposed to Catherine's tri-type work because I never felt like the model of the main type and then having a wing and having a stress point and having a strength point. I never felt like that resonated with the fullness of who I am. But now that I've studied myself as my tri-type of 471, that is really captures me much more fully. And then the overlay now of beginning to really get a handle on the instincts. Now I can look at the wings and it feels more like that's a better place for them to fit. That would make sense. I mean, the one thing that I learned also when I first was introduced to the Enneagram many, many years ago was that you had a wing. And the the thing that I quickly found with that first body of research was that if one wing was dominant, it was the one that was expressed, but the other one was there internally. And I found this through the interviewing. So I would ask people, okay, what wing do you identify with? And then I found if people are six and identify with the five wing, they're usually the introvert. And the extrovert identifies with the seven wing. But the truth of the matter, when I really understood Achazo's work with trialectics, his term, he coined it, is that it's always that dynamic, that law of three. And that what you said is totally accurate, David. You are always pinging between your type and the two wings, three. Your type and the line of connections, three. Your uh, three instincts and your three tie types. It's always pinging and it's never static. It's in motion. It's like a spiral. Like for every... um, motion or initiation there is a reaction or opposition and then a return to neutral but that neutral is never in the same place which is the very nature of a spiral so it's constantly moving but i would say also in different directions it's not like this perfect little spiral that moves up it's that we're always in motion and that's the moment of change is when we return to neutral and begin again and it happens so fast that much of the time we don't recognize it and can develop these kind of grooves like on a record but we can begin to change those too as we become conscious of different patterns and beginning any kind of study we're unconsciously incompetent until we become conscious of our incompetence. But our ultimate goal is to be unconsciously competent. 
to just know and understand something so that we are responding rather than reacting with limiting beliefs or negative behaviors. Sure. Uh, another thing I think would be useful for us to talk about is the fact that so many people are mistyped. Uh, and then that creates a problem from beginning. And it's easy to do. Like, for example, when I was a lot younger and I was first exposed to the Enneagram, um, I originally thought <coughs> excuse me, that I was a two. And it wasn't until later when I penetrated more deeply into the motivation for the behavior that I realized I was really a four and that the two behavior was a codependent compensatory strategy, but really wasn't being driven by the fundamental drives of the two. And um, it was really a revelation to realize I was a four and it was very surprising, but I knew it was true. And uh, I think this speaks to uh, a challenge that many people don't understand that the core of the Enneagram has to do with what's driving us, the why. And, um, and again, I'm using myself as an object lesson, as a guinea pig, but is there anything you want to say about this issue of either having being mistyping yourself or being mistyped by another and how we can begin to address that issue so that the Enneagram can really become more valuable for people? Hmm. Well, again, I would go back to the initial dissemination of the Enneagram. And what happened was the what was pertinent to the people that were present in the first trainings was what was communicated. Everything about the system had yet to fully um, reveal itself through time. We used to believe that we were our type as a result of the dynamic within our family. Now we know that we're born with it, but whether that we have a, you know, very easy ability to respond rather than be stuck and reacting has to do with nurture. So it is nature and nurture. But at the time, we felt that all of this was built on that. So the early books that were written by uh, people that had really worked with the Enneagram a long time, but had not had the opportunity to study with Naranjo or Chazo, didn't understand the premise of how these tensions came together. And in particular, I would say Chazo, his intent. And for those of you who don't know, it's actually Naranjo that came up with the instincts and filled in all the um, the breakout of the distinctions within type. He just gave attribution to Achazo initially, but he recently, within the last 10 years, came out and said that he had filled that in. So it was a work in progress. And if you understand that, then you can see how mistakes could be made. And initially, the there were certain kind of visual archetypes that were assigned 
to each Enneagram type. So, you know, a common way that an eight would look or a four would look or a seven would look or a six would look. Uh, like a real scholarly person with the narrow set eyes and the bigger head with the glasses would be an archetype of five. But you know what? Any Enneagram type can be a scholar and have that scholar archetype. But there's a preponderance of fives that have that archetype. And there's something meaningful about it. But it isn't true all of the time. So the mistake that was made in the dissemination was assigning a particular appearance rather than looking at the energy. Now, what is consistent is that the energy of each Enneagram type, the way they use their hands or push out their energy or have their energy held in or self-contained is indicative of type along with that uh, look and feel is indicative of type, but it's only one of maybe 12 to 20 factors that one should consider. So the mistakes were made when if you do X, you are this type. If you do Y, you are not that type. And they weren't built on the right foundation necessarily. And people didn't not mean to uh, disseminate information incorrectly. It's just that all of us initially work with what we've gotten. I remember I taught so many classes and then I, I went to Naranjo's uh, intensive, in, the one I mentioned in 1996 and I came back and said, okay, new class. <laughs> Everyone who's been in my class, come back. I have to update you on elements of the types and the instincts that haven't been taught and will really elucidate a lot more why we do what we do. And from that day forward, I've been willing to constantly grow and change as I get that data. But one is the, the look and feel. One is um, the way people speak, which actually is more indicative of type, not whether they yell or scream or are quiet and introverted, but the word choices has proven to be a far more uh, consistent indicator of the internal experience of type than, oh, gee, you must be an eight because you get big and angry. No, anybody that is really angry or is emotionally immature gets angry. That doesn't make you an eight. You have to also be the person who's protected. Just as because you're smart doesn't make you a five. You have to also use information as a way to manage the world. And as a four, just because you're you have deep emotions and you're sad does not make you a four. You have to have a driving need to find that, in a way, the holy grail of the internal experience. The four is the type on the Enneagram, if you consider that it's a continuum, that is the point of individuation. And that's a scary place to be. It's kind of easier to be in with the family unit and peer out than it is to take a step out into individuation and stand alone. So individuation begins at point four. It isn't complete till point eight. That's how hard it is. We have to go through the social um, 
factors first, but now we all have a point on the Enneagram where we're experts. And the four has the expertise of looking for that nuance to give meaning to whatever is happening in any given moment and to find the role they can fulfill to be safe in the world. Now, here's the confusion is the sexual instinct is trying to have the role of the masculine and feminine ideal of the person they want to attract. So it can seem very similar. And so much of the language is identical that it's really understandable. There's a lot of mistyping around four and the sexual instinct. But I'm going to ferret that out to the best of my ability in the upcoming uh, courses because it really was an advantage to study not only with the originators of this system, Machazo and Naranjo, and those who wrote the first books and certifying with them and everyone that, that studies and teaches the Enneagram out there comes up with amazing findings, but also to see where things were dropped out. Like, oh, wait a minute, when the Enneagram was disseminated through the Catholic pipeline. Instincts were too hard to understand, probably for the very reasons you're mentioning. So they just didn't include it. So what happened is a lot of the um, two and seven got mixed up, which were really just the social instinct that were put into sevens or, or vice versa. So that was easy. And anyone that was emotional was put into four. And anyone that tried to go along to get along was put into nine. Social six tries to do that all the time. So it's understandable that if the dissemination was done in an inconsistent way, which is true with everything in life, every, everything that's ever been taught, this happens with, you'll get different understandings. But if you go back to the core issue, the core fear, of the type, of the tri-type, of the instinctual type, and the instinctual stacking, you will get not only the behavior, but why someone's behaving that way. That, that's great. I, I, I think that distinction of that the Enneagram is really about what's driving us and that that can look in different, that can look different ways for a lot of reasons is really key. I think one thing that would be useful for some of our viewers and listeners who may have never heard of Oscar Chazo or Claudio Naranjo is just to just give a very thumbnail sketch. Um, Oscar Chazo was a, he's from Chile, right? He was a Chilean. He's still alive, actually. Uh, is a Chilean. In, myst- in Maui. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, a Chilean mystic, basically. And uh, Naranjo is a brilliant um Psychiatrist. Uh, psychiatrist. Uh, what was his uh, home country? Bolivia. Bolivia. Uh, just mm-hmm. a brilliant psychiatrist and uh, who spent time with Ichazo. And, yes. And took, took Ichazo's work and, and filtered it through his expertise as a psychiatrist. And, um, and then for various reasons, uh, when the Enneagram started to be popularized in print, in North America, the um, 
it was not presented initially as a uh, tool for spiritual realization and transformation. It was, it was presented more like as a way to understand yourself from a psychological point of view. And I think, um, I think it's important for people that were originally exposed to those kinds of books to understand that there's a much bigger picture here. Well, I would add to that, that it was originally taught as a tool for spiritual transformation when Echazo and Naranjo first taught it. Right. But I mean, in terms of getting into popular press, but even in the popular press, there was reference to the holy ideas, but no one knew what that meant. Right. And so it needed to be explained that there's this, you know, this visceral primal aspect and there's this uh, spiritual elevated state that all are in the same story of the Enneagram and the instincts. And in a way, the instincts ground us in reality. And then the um, holy virtue, which is the high side of the passion, and the holy idea, which is the high side of the fixation. Just think of a fixation like a crystallized belief that limits you versus the holy idea where you can just see the higher concept of anything and that everything has its place and it's going to unfold in the way that it's meant to. It's very different than, ooh, this view is the right view, and it's got to be like this. So that's what we're all moving towards. We're just coming from a different point as to what we know how to do really well and what is our immediate defense. Remember, we're born with it, so it's not like we're going to undo that or throw out the ego. It's a matter of being conscious of when it's operating and to be able to remember the, the higher opposite and reach neutrality as opposed to good, bad, right, wrong. Yeah. Or, so one of the things I love about the Enneagram is that it helps the, the sincere student to, to, to find their blind spots easier and also to open up to their hidden strengths. Uh, more easily. Um, Absolutely, because they can be blind too, to right. their strengths. Right. I, I, there's a, um, I think some people talk about the, the light shadow or the, mm-hmm. the yeah. Anyway, so um, I appreciate you having this conversation because it helps to get some closure on, the, on that last conversation we had and kind of bring it up to date. And I think it's a good segue into giving you a chance to talk about where you're at in your professional life right now. And I get the feeling there's a lot of creative juices flowing for you and you're attracting some great people. And there's a whole new arc of the spiral that's just starting for you that's going to be a blessing for all of us. And so let me just turn the show over to you for a while and just take it from here and talk a little bit about what's uh what's percolating in you these days and how that's beginning to manifest and how people can start to tap into that Hmm. well if any of you have known me over the years one thing i've always done is 
combined systems rather than making one right or wrong. I knew many, many systems before I learned about the Enneagram, but the Enneagram to me is the one system that can kind of hold and contain all other systems. And I have taught in different intensives or different workshops, correlations between let's say Karen Horney's work and the Enneagram or um, the core energetics in the Enneagram or empathy in the Enneagram. It's so obvious to me that the minute we think we know something, there'll be a piece that won't quite fit like you addressed at the beginning of this uh, session with respect to are you the self-pressed for or the sexual for? Because it was confusing if you just read the literature. Well, the same is true with something like empathy. So, But if you really have studied empathy and the different types of empathy and at what age they ideally develop and how much we're born with and so on, and then you compare it to the Enneagram types, there are ways to recognize how each Enneagram type displays empathy. And it very often is not the way we display it. So we're confused. One of my favorites is to talk about how the uh, five displays empathy, which is they'll help you do something. And people say, well, that's not empathy. Oh, yes, it is. If you're a type where your defense strategy says, you know, keep a distance, keep it intellectually, don't get involved. There'll be entanglements. Entanglements are confusing and social dynamics are dangerous. Then you're not going to get involved. So if a five helps you do something, that's a five having empathy for your distress and offering what they have to offer, which is their ingenuity. And this is true of each Enneagram type, the way they go about doing that. But when you first learn any system, you correlate against what you know in life. And I found that with the Enneagram, that there were these uh, decisions made about the types that were understandable. And I certainly even taught them myself initially, but they didn't explain how each type does what is innately human. So my goal has always been to look at what is human and how would each one of us express our version of whatever it is we're discussing. Because to be human, we're going to have a spectrum of identification, whether it's gender. Okay, there's variation in gender, but it's on a spectrum. Introversion, extroversion, on a spectrum. Uh, whether we want to help people or pull back on a spectrum. So it's just a bunch of these spectrums coming together, but we all have it in one way or another. And even if we have a deficit in one of those areas, we'll have a corresponding gift. So my focus has always been to find those elements and fill in the gaps of what would have to be there, kind of the the implied 
element. And the only way I can do that, of course, is to be able to interview an awful lot of people for an awful long period of time, which I have done over and over again for the last 20 some odd years. So in this new approach, I'm unfolding the Enneagram and other systems. I don't want to be limited anymore to a single system. I want all systems to come into play and their merit and their value be out there. I have met the most phenomenal teachers and people that know systems at, a, at the level I know the Enneagram. And I know other Enneagram teachers that know other systems. And I, I want to bring them together because my goal is to have people who know nothing about this work to find it. So I have to kind of be a little more kind of generic and I have to advertise in a different way. I'm used to just going to my core people that just want to know my work. So you'll see different ways that things will be introduced with little videos or little interviews like this or what have you. But if you, if you want to share this with a broader audience like when David and I did the uh, Types Your Personality Reviewed series. The whole reason for that was to get the Enneagram into hands of people that would watch YouTube. And that's my motivation. Now, the great news is I've met people that can do what I can't and make that possible in a in a way that I don't have to deal with. My gift is the pattern recognition. It is not, okay, now write this or write that or in this, send that out on this day. No. So for those of you that actually are on my list, you'll, you'll see that I'm going to introduce a, a new program and ongoing classes and specialty classes all um, that you can take online that will be recorded. I'm also introducing a, a certification program for those of you who need it in your business and your work to have the credibility that so much of, uh, especially the business end needs to show that you've demonstrated uh, knowledge and intent and passed. And I'm going to include a new test that will be free. I'm not going to have a, a paid test. My goal again is to get it out to people. And it's improved in accuracy, and I'm still working with all of you to get it better and better. I love feedback. A lot of times people say, oh, I don't want to give you bad feedback. I go, no, give me bad feedback, because bad feedback is where I can improve. If you just say, oh, it's great, well, what have I got to work with? And there's always room for growth and improving things. So that'll roll out. And then I'm working with people who have all these fantastic technical skills and an amazing vision that can create the, the, um, app, the app that will support this learning. So you can go on and say, oh, wait a minute wow, I just had a conflict with this person. I'm not sure, but I think they're a three or a seven. Mm, I know I'm an eight. What are the predictable ways an eight and a three will get into trouble? Mm, what are the predictable ways an eight and a seven? Oh, that's it. Let me try this. That doesn't work. I'll try the other. 
because it's too hard to learn all of it at the level, for example, that we know it now instantly. So we need those support materials. So uh, Nick Connor is introducing that. We met a couple years ago and I provided the, the content and he's provided the mechanics. And then someone I had met uh, many years ago, um, Max Marner is just like this, you know, genius as well. They're both geniuses, by the way, entrepreneurs long before I met them. And he's a whole nother end of this where he's got this vision and together they're phenomenal. And then they know systems and they're, they have the spiritual focus as well as the practical focus, as well as the business focus. So they're really well-rounded. So both, they're the primary people I'm working with, but I'm actually working with a broader range of people that have expertise in all these different areas, and that will continue to grow. What is, it about, yeah, what is it about the Enneagram that makes it kind of like a meta system that has a different quality than many other systems that allows it to create an empowering frame for all this other stuff? Well, if I were just to answer that off the top of my head, the first thing that comes to mind is all these other systems identify behavior or predictability, like palmistry is predictive, you know, astrology is predictive. And let's say there's a lot of truth in it. But again, human nature comes in and it's, you know, the nature of free will. And if we look at behavior, yeah, someone could behave that way. But what if they change that behavior? And the Enneagram of all the systems is the only one that fills in the gap of the mystery of individuals. Now, it's filling in more and more, though. It's even better now than it was um, 32 years ago when I found it, almost 33, because we know more. But it, it, the reason it has survived and the reason that it is so dynamic is people recognize themselves and they have something to do with what they've learned. Now, initially, very little was stated as to what you could do other than, in a way, transformation through insight, which is still powerful. But now we can say, oh, okay, like that eight and three I was talking about earlier. We can say, okay, what dynamic will neutralize that opposing element when an eight and a three are in conflict? What is that third force that needs to come in and neutralize those energies? We have things to do with it now. And it doesn't change um, over time. We, we're born with our type, we'll die with our type. But our... Um, social awareness and our social psychology does improve and our empathy grows exponentially. I never say it right. Exponentially. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I always want to put a D in there. I can't stop not doing that, but it grows, you know, on a, if we were to see it on a graph, it continues to expand. And then we can see that someone that can just, irritate us 
and it'll be a, the same pattern we have all the time. Like mine is when I'm in a hurry and I want competency. And when someone is competent and I have to wait, it's just the nature of things. But if someone's incompetent, I'm waiting. The eight energy uh, being disempowered by incompetence grows and I want to take over. I want to take charge. I want to say, isn't there anyone else here? I want to do something to assert. But if I understand that that's my defense strategy and I'm really not going to be in peril if I'm a little late, then I can calm that and be aware of what is intrinsically there between that person who's incompetent in my mind and my own incompetency, which is that I, I'm impatient with waiting. That's how I'm incompetent. But I don't need to be triggered. Or once I'm triggered, I don't need to stay inflamed because something feels emotionally dangerous if it's going to smack of incompetence to me. And once we can start to recognize that these total strangers that we'll even react to in the same way are doing exactly what they know how to do, that no one is trying to irritate us unless they're a sibling or something and they're trying to get even, then we can just shed that time spent defending and use it in expanding and being there for others and in a greater capacity. We don't need to use up our energy for that. We can have it. I'm not saying we're not going to have our difficult moments. We will. But we don't need to stay mired in them or identified with them or stay in the shame. We can tag what they remind us of. And we can recognize we're human. That's going to hurt us. But that other person is human as well. And that's what we share in common. Again, this is why it's so critical to me to always go back to what's innately human and to give everybody the opportunity to rise to their more conscious self and stay there more frequently. Right. Another... uh sort of loose end for me because you brought it up earlier and as an educator and someone who's really sensitive to energy, my ears really perked up when you talked about the fact that much deeper than the behavior is an energetic of each type that stays pretty constant. Have you thought about or do you know of other people who have ways of teaching the Enneagram that helps people to really tap into the energetic sense of each type? Well, there are a a lot of people that are working with the energetics from the standpoint of the visceral, the body, and teaching you ways to physically embody the energy of the other types so you can sense it. Uh, Like Andrea Isaacs, there are people that, uh, like David, when he first introduced together with me the core energetics in the Enneagram so okay here are these five energy structures and here are these nine Enneagram types and what happens when they come together and how to 
diffuse it. Because let's face it, when we walk into a room, before we know who's there, and if there's someone behind us we can't see, we'll get a sense of whether we like being there or not, or whether someone gives us the creeps or not. And that's energy. We're feeling energies long before we are really looking into someone's eyes and connecting in a more uh, personal way. And why? Because biologically, we'd have to make those decisions like this or, you know, be food potentially to a predator or be, um, you know, in danger with a marauding tribe. We had to know at a glance, friend or foe. So I would have to say that there are quite a few and that I can't think of one in particular that uses energy perhaps in the way that you're asking. I would have to look into that. But certainly the um, the two that I've mentioned are, are really well versed with energy and the Enneagram in that way. And so, for, so you'd feel comfortable recommending Andrea Isaac's work? Yeah, for people who want to be able to embody, physically embody the other types. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I met Andrea many years ago and was there when she did her first uh, workshop. Because her whole background is a, as a self-pressed four, was in dance and in embodying her own energy to be able to dance. And so with her knowledge of the Enneagram, she's just taken it to another level. Breath work also helps people drop the defenses to be able to read the energy. See, it isn't just the energies. I would say, like the point I want to focus on, that maybe there are many people doing, but I don't know about them yet, and they'll show up as we go along. But people that are using how to interpret the energy of others based on the way we read energy. And each one of us reads energy in a very different way. So again, we first need to know what type of intuition do we have? Is it visceral? Is it, um, is it through the mind? Is it through the heart? Is it through the senses? And if that's how we know things, that'll be our approach. So you can see again why I really love working with the different systems because wherever we are in any moment in time, it might be that system that will help us understand something in a meaningful way. If we're all coming from the same understanding of the Enneagram, then we can bring in any of these symptoms, uh, sorry, these systems to explain symptoms that are, we're struggling with. But I think it requires a deep, correct understanding of the Enneagram that allows all of these potential synergies to really come to life. Right. Yeah. Which is why, you know, most people know that I don't, I don't teach introduction very often, except in businesses, because people often feel like they have to be sold on the concept and you have to say, okay, and then they get it. And then they're, it's profound. And there are certain types, the six and the nine that have 
trouble with it because they're meant to have trouble with it based on their defense strategy. And I like to say, okay, you got the, you got the fundamentals. Okay. Let's go to some subtleties. But I, I had the experience where so many people didn't have the, the criteria that would help them really know how to recognize type, not on a superficial level, but like what you needed to know to, line, to delineate what an eight is. Like, for example, if the type isn't nonchalant, they aren't an eight. Because an eight has like, when an eight gets um, insolent, they get slower and more indifferent. They don't get bigger and anxious. That's more like a six. That's a counterphobic six. They don't start tracking like this and, you know, get big and take over. They go, oh, so you're telling me. If they don't get that, it's so easy to mistype. So I've decided to begin at the beginning. And yet, in my experience, people who know the Enneagram quite well, like uh, my introductory classes because I'm teaching things that I learned having had the opportunity to be with all the teachers and you know adding in saying okay this was dropped out add this back in and now you'll see readjust that lens and now you see this is an eight not a six or this is a six not an eight or four not a Well, there's something really exciting about someone at your level of expertise and experience going back now and doing an introductory class. There's something, I think it's a wonderful opportunity, and I'm glad it's going to be recorded. Um, So as we move toward wrapping up this conversation, is a couple of things. One is, is there anything you want to say in closing? And also, please make sure that you give the contact information for people who want to connect more with your work ah yeah it's uh info at katherinefavor.com my name and eventually i will why don't you spell why don't you spell that okay k-a-t-h-e-r-i-n-e just like on the screen i believe favor f is in frank a-u v is in victor r-e.com and you know it if you um is there a website yeah katherinefaber.com yes that's where i'm leading you to is katherinefaber.com and i have a, i have the collages from the first study they'll be used in the training again i have the uh, a lot of material up there i have a lot of uh hangouts that I do of this nature where I'm asked different questions and we go into different areas of study. I'm beginning the course on the personality advantage next Tuesday, the 6th, February 6th. So you can find out more about that uh, by being on my um, mailing list. So just put your name in there. As I said, there'll be quite a few mailings in the next month as we, unpackage all these new things we're doing we were going to do it all at once and that was just too overwhelming for us and we thought it would be too overwhelming for you so they're going to come out you know one a week so first we're going to launch this course and then we're going to launch the 
I think the test actually might even be coming out as I speak as I talk to you right now, but it'll be coming soon. So what you can do is just check in with things at katherinefodder.com. A couple and, of things. And Kath, I, I also am on Facebook. I, there's a relationship between the Facebook and my website. Remember, I'm not technical, but it's Catherine Faber Enneagram Consulting. On Facebook. Okay. So a couple of things. One is that this is going to go up on YouTube and on the podcast site. And so there's some people that are going to find this six months, a year, or two years down the road and are going to be listening to this and – uh, I assume all of this will be recorded. Yes. Yeah. The, cl- the classes are all going to be recorded. Yes. Okay. And. Because um, everybody has, I mean, I have an international clientele. So when's the right time to teach? There is no one right time because when it's good for Central Africa and Russia, it, it's not good for uh, California. So. If it's recorded, people can okay. watch it in their own time. Now, one other thing is there are going to be some people who are going to come across this, and they're going to feel like this conversation, a lot of it was way over their heads because it was assuming background information. And so what would you say to the people who are kind of intrigued by this conversation but feel a little bit like a fish out of water? Yeah, begin at the beginning. Go to uh, com. There is one test on there already. Take that test. Begin to explore what you think you might be. And read the description of all nine types, not just the type and tri-type it suggests that you are. And see um, what it means for you. And then from there, I really encourage some sort of group or class because we don't really use it until there are people in our lives that we can use it with. So a class starts that. But one reason I like the free test is that then everybody will give that test to all their friends and family. I mean, I have people in my, my high school graduating class that know the Enneagram. We can go back and revisit our high school years and say, Oh, you were doing that because you were three and you needed more admiration. And I was doing that because I was an aide and couldn't show that I cared. And, you know, I wouldn't have ever wanted anyone to know I wanted admiration and just revisit it. And the four, oh, well, you know, and I was just always trying to get you to come after me and you didn't notice. And we we're like a, a different group of people now that we know this. Right. It's just amazing because we did have that history of that time together, but it gave us a vehicle to really understand it. So, yes. Another thing people can do is they can go to my podcast website, cutting edge doc, that's cutting edge doc.com forward slash episodes and scroll down. And this kind of completes a trilogy of conversations that will be on there. And if you go in reverse order and you listen to them, uh, we do start out in the beginning conversation kind of from the beginning. Yes. And uh, that would be a good thing to do as well. They're on the, uh, my conversations with you are on my homepage as well. Oh, great, 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 great. So, so they, can, they can get it either way. 
beautiful. So this one will be on there too. Okay. Um, any last words or are we good? We're good. It's always a pleasure to see you always ask just the right questions that many people want to know the answer to. So I always appreciate that. Thank you, David. You're welcome. So ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition, listening or watching on YouTube or on another site, uh, another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, one of my intentions is to kind of uh, uh, bring back to life the art of the in-depth interview. You know, we're in such a soundbite technology that I think it's become a lost art, and I think there's a lot to be said for taking the time to really do a thoughtful, in-depth interview. And today, my special guest has been Catherine Chernick-Faver, one of the world's leading experts on the Enneagram and definitely my go-to person when I really, really want to know something that has to do with the Enneagram. And so, Catherine, thank you so much. It's always delightful. And as always, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. For joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to cuttingedgedoc.com. That's cuttingedgedoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.